Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher. Tonight I'm talking again with Joshua Cutchen. He has edited a book that just came out and he has written a book that is not out yet, but will be within about two weeks. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing well. It's always a pleasure to talk to one of my favorite people. I, I feel like we always bring this up every time I come on here, but I, I just spent a weekend with my family and they were asking me like, how do you know this barber lady again? And I'm trying to remember how we first connected and, and, first... and, and why, and why I attached myself to you like a parasite. I can't, I can't I remember why. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, it really was that I was like, did I write to you after I read no, I think it was when I asked you to be on the podcast. I think it was. And then I don't know how I intuited that you were so simpatico with a lot of my my peculiarities, but it's it's been a great relationship so far. I'm, <laughs> so I'm happy. I don't know. Yeah. You might not feel the same way, but I'm I'm happy so far. Yeah. It's working. Yeah. It's working. Yeah. Now everybody's like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, I just, I, I, I feel like... Uh, especially the involvement that you've had in my projects and another upcoming project that we have together. Um, I have found that it's difficult to, let me think of a more delicate way to put this, the Venn diagram of people who are interested in these subjects and the people who have an appreciation for language is not as significant as an overlap of an overlap as it should be. Um, And I feel like I sit in the middle of that because I, you know, I, I try to, to cram some elegance into my nonfiction books every now and then. Um, but, you know, you, you have an ear and an eye for that. So uh, between that and just the breadth and depth of knowledge that you have and our similarly shared views of the phenomenon, you know, I'm sure we disagree here and there, but everybody does. Um, yeah, it just made just makes sense, has made sense so far. We'll, we'll see what happens when we, you know. Uh, Actually work on a project. <laughs> yeah, big exactly, project. Exactly. Well, although we've already worked on a really big project. So, yeah. 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 But. Um, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> how did you meet this weird lady? Well, she, she contacted me on the internet yeah. and then everybody is going to go, oh my God. No. Yeah. Well, no. you know, it's, it's, it's not the same internet it was 30 years ago. No, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and then sometimes it's like, damn, too <laughs> yeah, bad. <laughs> well, and I like what you say about having, uh, an eye and an ear for elegant language, um, because I can count on probably a hand and a half the people who write truly elegantly about the the weird phenomena. Like, there's people who write perfectly well. N- not not a problem with that. There are people who write like John Keel, which isn't elegant, but is amazing. Right, and, I, I would agree with that assessment and, too, yeah. And hilarious sometimes, and just like jumping on a roller coaster and not knowing if the track is going to just suddenly fall out from under <laughs> you or if it's going to fling you into the sky or if you're going to make it safe at the end. That's the perfect uh, analogy, yeah. Yeah, so that's not that's not elegant, right. but like Valet is elegant. Har- Patrick pros. Harper is, is elegant. Patrick Harper. Um, yeah. Let's see. Andrew Collins. Mm, he's mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. good. He's good at – he's kind of like – he has the elegance – and then he's really funny and has a really dry sense of humor and it, it pops in. You know who I was really impressed with was um, Zelia Edgar's writing as oh, well. Yeah, like, she's I'm just, good. I, I read that and I, I felt a flush of envy. I'm like, oh, 
dang it i should have i should have put that that sentence together you know here and yeah there. oh yeah she's writing. good she's too. great with that so yeah i mean I, I don't want to say that there aren't people out there but you know um i i think that so <laughs> it's kind of an interesting little tangent that i talked about um you know being a christian i get encouraged to appreciate a lot of christian art you know christian films and christian music etc and i finally nailed down what bothers me about like 90% of it is that they're so obsessed they tend to be so obsessed with delivering the right message that they forget about the craft of making a good song having a good melody you know having an interesting harmony like there's got to be something else there the, the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. And I feel like a lot of, you know, uh, religious films with a message just don't care about the, the craft of these things. And similarly, a lot of 14 books do the same thing. And if your subject matter is compelling enough, nobody notices. But if mm -hmm. you can combine compelling subject matter and, you know, an articulate, interesting sentence, then I think that's the that's the sweet spot. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. I feel like, but then now I feel like I'm just sort of like tooting my own horn or something. But like I, I care about language. I guess is what I'm saying. So, yeah. You were a journalism major at one point, right? Yeah, I was a journalism major, and I immediately bristled against how little freedom there was to to describe things. You know, it was like mm -hmm. you, know, you can't use this purple prose, and I'm like, but it's purple prose is the reason. I'm here. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, then that's not to say I didn't learn some 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 really good skills. One of my um, professors that I thought highly of was at one point the vice president of the Associated Press. So, like you know, in terms of like knowing how to get the message across and and uh, checking for you know undermining yourself when you write, which I think is one of the biggest pitfalls. Um, yeah, that was incredibly useful. So I don't want to don't want to dismiss it too much, but at the same time, it wasn't quite what I thought I was getting into. I thought I was going to have a no. chance to breathe a little bit more, but I mean, obviously, as you can tell, I, I tend to write so much that I would, I would be a very poor fit for a newsroom because I would be like, no, this, this story does need to be 25,000 words. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, yeah. And the copy desk is going, no, yep, it doesn't. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> we don't have that. You're not going to get it. So it doesn't. Yeah. Do you want to edit it down or do you want me to do it? That's, you know, <laughs> Yeah. That used to be my job. Do you want me to do it? Or are you going to do it in 15 minutes? And another good reason that we work together is because you know when to say, Josh, this is too much. So, um, yeah. yeah. You generally don't have that problem. Every now and then, here's a word you cannot use yeah. in relation to somebody's grandma. Can't do it. <laughs> can't talk about meme all that way. Just can't. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Not happening. Nope. Yeah. It evokes too many pictures. <laughs> and I, I was just visualizing those books being stacked up and set on fire by by angry people with memals everywhere. I no, just that's, couldn't. That's that's I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep, and you're totally right. Um, so yeah, people are probably wondering what the hell this episode's about. Sorry, sorry, folks. This episode is about your book that you edited. So why don't you talk a little bit about the book that you edited because. I'd really like to know why you decided to edit that. So I have been collecting bits of ephemera regarding fairy belief, not like literally collecting them, but just putting them in my head and, and sort of um, trying to build a case internally for rescuing 
some of that folklore because it's kind of a punchline. Like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a movie and, you know, there's some sort of creature and they're, when they want to undermine the reality of the creature, they'll say, well, it's, yeah, you're going to tell me you saw a leprechaun. I'm like, no, that's, that's totally legit. Like seeing a leprechaun is totally legit. So like the whole fairy leprechaun, faithful little people, um, mythos, regardless of what specific culture it's appended to has become sort of a, a punchline. Um, and yet it seems to undergird so much of our, language and our thought and our art and for a time i had an idea that it would be a really interesting coffee table book of just um certain words that owe the owe a debt of owe a debt to fairy folklore in terms of their origin and you know the examples that i always like to use are um stroke is one of the more common mm-hmm. examples you know it was originally referring to the fairy stroke um it appears as if the term cobalt the color was actually named after kobolds as opposed to vice versa, um, which are another, you know, Germanic, um, Germanic underground knockers, yeah, Tommy yeah. knockers, but again, knockers, mining, Tommy knockers, mining critters. yeah, boogers come from boogeyman, which come from boggarts and just, there are all these sort of different things that we just take for granted that have sort of entered into our lexicon and, uh, and don't really get remarked upon as having that sort of fairy pedigree. So even though, it's it's a bit like the remote viewing stuff. Like people people who don't who don't think that remote viewing is real have nonetheless funded remote viewing. <laughs> you know, like your tax dollars have have paid for it. Um, so it's it's kind of one of those things that that we take for granted to a certain degree. So there was an idea for a coffee table book, and I was just like, this is just you know stuff like that lives and dies on the artwork involved, um, and that is not something with which I have quite the capacity as I do for writing. So I was like, so I was turning this idea over and over in my head about a way to illustrate how pervasive these motifs are. Um, and from there at some point, um, this idea for a collection of essays, um, on fairy films popped up. Um, I've, I've tried to always zig when people think I'm going to zag and try to do something a little bit different than what I did before, partially because I kind of want to keep people on their toes and partially because I want to have that experience. Um, and one of the experiences that I had participated in from the contributor's side, but not from the editor's side, was uh, heading up a collection of essays. So I assembled uh, a rogues gallery of folks uh, to be involved, and I gave them the mandate, you know, um, let's talk about pick a film um, and construct an essay circa, I think, 10,000 words was the limit. Um, write an essay about how the fairy motifs come up in this film. And the, the explicit mandate to begin with, of course, you, you give essays their, their directions and they... And they, they run off yeah, in the they, opposite they, they direction so, and do something else. So, so that was that was the explicit mandate is that these were going to be films that did not explicitly involve fairies. Like, you know, no labyrinths, no dark crystals, no none of this stuff. But, you know, people ended up pitching and turning in things that did involve fairies. And then I, I kind of came to realize something, which I address, I address in the, the forward of the book, uh, which is fairy films. Um, if cases anybody anyone is wondering, it's available from Educated Dragon. Uh, but um, it's it's the fact that not only do fairy motifs persist where they shouldn't, 
in films that have nothing to do with fairies. You still see these fairy ideas, but also the core authenticity of fairy folklore manages to push through um, misrepresentation. It manages to push through fairy disinformation, I guess. You know, yeah. one of my favorite uh, essays in the book um, ended up being Simon Young's uh, analysis of Walt Disney's treatment of fairies. And obviously that would have been excluded from my initial parameters, but he did such a good job of sort of rescuing some of the Disney fairies um, from the dustbin into which so many folklorists often toss them, myself included. So there was a lot of learning and a lot of eye-opening on that end um, for me. So I'd come up with this idea. I ended up, this was in the pandemic, and I was, I think at that point, uh, where the footprints in volume two was still kind of being tweaked, and I was eager to start something, but because we all had time on our hands. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was eager to start something and be productive with something, but I didn't really necessarily want to start a new, an entirely new book project with, with footprints not being completely finished. And so I approached uh, the late Robbie Graham uh, about doing it, and he said it was a great idea. And Robbie shepherded it uh, through a lot of the process. And then at some point, we came to a mutual agreement to part ways, and he was um, he was accommodating enough to allow that to happen. And it wound up with Educated Dragon, which is a publishing house that is um, operated by one of my contributors, as it turns out. So it was kind of a, kind of a match made in heaven towards the end, but uh, it definitely had a rocky, a rocky production. Um, I think these essays probably sat completely finished, but not put into their final form for about 18 months. Um, wow. Yeah, they just sort of sat there and I had to answer so many emails about like, when's this book coming out from contributors? I'm like, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, it, it makes for an interesting story, I guess, on the other side of it. So we wound up with, oh, I've got, I should have had my PDF here open. I, <laughs> of all the different, <laughs> all the different uh, things that we wound up with, but we wound up with an odd number of, of contributors. Actually, we wound up with, uh, I believe it was 11 contributors. Um the full roster is Dr. Jack Hunter, myself. I did contribute in addition to uh, to editing it. Uh, Mark Anthony Wyatt, uh, Dr. Neil Rushton, uh, Susan Demeter, Patrick Dugan, who is the owner of uh, Educated Dragon, Dr. David Floyd, Allison Jornlin, uh, James P. Nettles, Simon Young, and Ren Collier. And um, it's an interesting cross section of personalities and I've been sort of, when people talk to me about it, you know, I think that there is an uncharitable way to read this book, which is that it's kind of shaggy. Like you have some really <laughs> highbrow academic analyses of, of, you know, Jungian archetypes as tied to fairies in relation to some of these films. And then you have somebody who's just kind of like, you know, plowing through something like Rocky Horror Picture Show and picking out how it looks like it's tied to fairy folklore. I think it's kind of it kind of ended up charming in that regard, but um, I th I'm, I'm sure that there's another reading that it's inconsistent in terms of tone. But again, I think it speaks to the fact that um, the fairy motif appeals to, or it it enters into high art and low art. It crosses across all sorts of you know social strata. Um, all sorts of, um, you know, interpretation. I, I think it, I think it ended up being a strength in the end. Um, yeah. A bit of a long winded really, answer, but <laughs> it, it, no, it's fine. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, uh, 
I had been wanting to see the film that Neil Rushton talked about for umpteen zillions of years and had tried to, you know, pirate it in various formats from like the time it came out. Uh, because I don't think it was ever released in the United States. It is very difficult to find. In case anyone's wondering what the film is, it's called uh, Photographing Fairies. Yes. Yes. Um, and and it is available on Vudu. Okay. Um, and I have seen it finally. And it is as wonderful as Dr. Rushton said. Um, and I, I, I'm going to have to just, you know, buy it on Vudu because I know I'm going to watch it a couple more times. But I have a listener who said, you know, I think you and I, Dr. Rushton, and one other person are the only people I know of who have seen this film. And she says, and I know a lot of fairy people. So it, <laughs> she's well, like, it really needs to be known more, more widely. Yeah. Um, it's an obs relatively obscure film um, starring uh, Sir Ben Kingsley. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's, it's set. Uh, it's just right after those, World, yeah, right after it, World War One. Um, one, yeah, and so it uses the background of that sort of uh, theosophic, spiritualist sort of um, time frame to tell this story that uses um, uses the Cottingley fairy photographs as an entry point into mm -hmm. telling a, a broader story that is surprisingly mature uh, in terms of like where the current scholarship is headed. Um, you know, talking about uh, alter states of consciousness and sort of skirting the line between life and death with these things. Um, the film is in uh, 1997, and it's based on a 1992 novel, which I have not read. I uh, haven't read it either. Yeah, so uh, the, the listener I've talked with has read it, and she said hey, the movie's better. <laughs> so <laughs> fair enough for what for what what it's worth. I, I that's. That's what I've heard. It, it, ha it happens from time to time. Yeah, it happens from time to time. Um, but yeah, and, and, you know, Neil turned in such a, such a, a lovely, I would even dare say, elegiac essay um, mm -hmm. in, for his part. And uh, yeah, he was, he was one of those people who was, who was asking me always about when it was going to be released. I'm like, Neil, this is so good. It will be out there eventually. I promise. <laughs> um so yeah, I mean, so when you give someone the mandate, write a fairy essay about a non-fairy film, and you get something like Neil's essay on photographing fairies, you're like, okay, I've got to re, I've got to reevaluate the direction of this project. So um, he wrote about a film that was explicitly fairy oriented. Um, Jack Hunter, I am very proud to say, was able to include uh, excerpts from a previously unreleased Brian Froud interview. In his essay that ended up speaking about Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, so that's another um, overt fairy film. Um, Susan Demeter wrote about The Hole in the Ground, which is a, a wonderful film out of Ireland from a couple years ago, which I would... Which I really want to see. I'm trying to remember if that film explicitly says the F word, and I don't think that they do, but that's obviously a huge part of it. Um, uh, you know, Allison, Allison wrote about sort of a hodgepodge of a couple of different... Uh, films and television shows and whatnot uh, that did and didn't exclusively deal with 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 fairies, um, and of course, as I alluded to, Simon Young <clears throat> wrote about the Disney Theosophic fairies as well. Um, and you know, all those essays, even though they were not what I initially planned for, um, 
were really were really interesting to 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 have in there because as I as I said that they did show how either a degree of homework was done on the part of the filmmakers or possibly, and this would be the more interesting stance from where I stand, um, these archetypes of motifs are so strong that they just sort of bubble up on their own um, without even being consciously tapped into or consciously researched, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I I was sad to see that the, uh, the secret of Rowan Inish wasn't there uh, because I really like that one. And and it's, it's, reasonably subtle with its fairiness you know and and it's one of those things well is this true or is this just the story that is told in the family did this happen are there selkies are there not and they i don't i think they say selkie once i think only once and it's it's, so long since i've seen that so it's so it's so carefully I, i tend to watch it like every couple years or so and uh, Fox is fascinated with it, and will watch it, you know, at the drop of a hat. So yeah, there was um, th- there are, I mean, there could be not that I would take on this burden anytime soon, um, <laughs> but there there could easily be a sequel or a follow up that took another dozen or so films and and analyzed them in that sense. I mean, there's a, a 2018 Swedish film called Border about um that's right this this troll couple um allison mentions it briefly but you know it doesn't really get dug into too much um you know i i, I think that uh there was a was it this, this netflix series set in iceland called was it katka or katla yeah katla um, yeah and of course you know the answer it was it was a perfect example kind of what i was even though it didn't get included in, in this book it's a perfect example of the kind of thing that i was talking about which is spoilers for this netflix series it's like two or three years old um the reason why things are happening that's odd is oh there was a there was a meteorite that fell to the ground and it's making magic <laughs> and I'm like <laughs> you realize that like it's it's the exact same explanation if you take if you do a mad lib and you replace meteorite with you know fairy or whatever it's the exact same explanation that you would have heard you know 600 years ago yeah yeah there's a norwegian film too it's about the Holdra, uh, the the female guardian of the woodlands. She she has doe feet and a and a she's hollow from the back or Is has a cow's tail. Thula? Yes, Thula. Um, and it's the the it's a it's a horror movie sort of, but the way they they fit her in there, it's I. I have to watch all of it. I've only seen like a couple of trailers from it, but it's kind of a, how did these guys, these kind of dopey, like they don't know their own folklore guys find this, (laughs) this person and then find that there's some nefarious thing happening. Um, They're crime scene cleaners. So nice. You know, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so so yeah. If 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 you want to help me, maybe we'll do this in like eight years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll put yeah. together fairy films part two. Um, but you know, I, I did have a couple of requests of some of the essayists. Um, I chose. I would have done this myself, but I chose a different film. But I, I did have a request that 
I even sent this out in the initial email. I said, somebody do close encounters of the third kind. Yeah. Like just to, to slip in my constant, um, my constant refrain of, of failions, <laughs> as I like to call them. Um, so I was, I was very, very pleased, uh, when that actually ended up, uh, being taken up, uh, by, uh, David Floyd, um, who is, it's by far the most academic of the essays, but it really does dig into those, like, you know, Thompson's folklore index and all those sort of things that, that make folklorists stomachs grumble. Um, (laughs) for, for my part, um, for my part, I had struggled for a long time. Um, I had struggled for a long time with this Dutch film, um, called Borgman from 2013. And it was uh, selected as uh, an entry um, for best foreign language film at the Academy at the Academy Awards for that year. And I remember watching it before I was as <clears throat> read into all this stuff as I am now and being like, what is this? This is dumb. doesn't make any sense. And it was startling to me once you, uh, how once you shifted this sort of fairy lens over it, how it really, I mean, none of this stuff ever makes sense, right? But it, it makes it more approachable in, in terms of like, oh, this seems to be a variation on that, and this seems to be a variation mm-hmm. on the other. Um, so that was that was really exciting for me. Um, again, a lot of these projects have this sort of <laughs> this sort of selfish impulse embedded into them, and in this case, I was like, I just want to get this interpretation of this out there. Someone a long time ago, and I wish I could remember their name emailed me and, and said, you should look at Borgman and you should, you should look at it through the fairy lens. And I was, and I'd already seen it at one point and I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then I went back and I watched it and it's, it's got, you know, changelings and fairy dogs and uh, a fairy stroke. Like it's just, it's so, it's so on the nose that it either is uh, the director <clears throat> doing his homework or again, these things just being these, these ideas being so strong that they just sort of take on a life of their own through fiction as a lot of things do. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, some people following what I'm doing right now will probably note a tendency towards fiction, not just, not just with the fairy films uh, collection that we're discussing now, nor just with the novel that we'll discuss later. But uh, before either of these things came out, um, I had a I had a contribution to Dr. Hunter's collection Deep Weird and that was sort of using cinematic techniques as a possible way to understand some of the things that are reported in experiences involving high strangeness because a lot of these cinematic techniques are designed to elicit a specific response so what if the phenomenon is using things that look like cinematic techniques to mm-hmm. <clears throat> to generate a similar response so I've become really interested in fiction because I just a lot of folks don't want to hear this, but um, the things that we talk about, if you're interested in this stuff, that line between the two is so blurred between fact and fiction. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not saying that people are making things up. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, books literally come to life. I'm just saying that I think that the the line that we put between those two is overdue for an evaluation. And it ties into some of the other things that we've talked about in terms of like the imaginal versus the imaginary and that sort of internal external 
boundary being fuzzier than we give it credit for. But I, I really think that I, I I didn't really plan on this sort of tendency towards fiction, but it just sort of happened. And I think it's 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 been born out of sort of an interest in trying to find another way to look at these phenomena. And it, and it makes sense. There's in in my view, there's some things that are easier to tell in fiction, even if they're your version of the truth. And then there are times when, I mean, some people will believe fiction before they'll believe truth, or the truth is just so darn strange, they assume it's fiction, or back and forth. It's a, it's a weird thing the way people will suspend their disbelief or not. The medium is important. That's what I've come to really realize. Um, you know, there's this famous sort of semi-apocryphal quote attributed to Harrison Ford on the set of, I think maybe it was Empire Strikes Back. It might have been the original Star Wars, New Hope. But he, he said to George at one point, he was reading the script, he's like, you can write this shit, George, but you can't say it. <laughs> and it's the, perfect, it's the yeah. perfect example of like how there are certain layers of suspension of disbelief that get thrown up when these things are oral tradition mm -hmm. uh, or they are written down or they're told through a dramatic reenactment on a television show. They all carry with them. their certain barriers to being believable or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that, you know, that's something else that we lose sight of. Like I'm sure if I actually had to film the Joe Simonson pancake encounter, it, it might be impossible to film. And I'm not saying that it didn't happen. And I'm not saying that it happened exactly as he said it did. I'm just saying like, from what we know, it, sound, it would be impossible to film and not induce, induce laugh. laughter. Yeah, exactly. So what does that say about this stuff? You know? Um, and what does that say about the fact that in Simonton's case, there was some physical evidence left behind. So, you know, I'm really, I've become really fascinated and, and I guess enamored to a certain degree with that. Yeah. I, again, that's one of my favorites. Uh, and I feel bad for him because he was minding his own business. He, he, yeah. he, he didn't read weird stuff. You know, he didn't ask for this. And, and if you he read, just was yeah. kind and gave them water when they asked for water. And if you, if you look into him, he seems like a really sweet guy. He used to volunteer as Santa Claus and, uh, you know, it was just a, a, not to use the term pejoratively, but a simple, you know, rural Wisconsin he, farmer. He was just um, a normal guy. Yeah, he yeah, was just, a, yeah. as, as Fox would say, he was just a guy. He was just a, <laughs> a little guy walking around, being a farmer, doing his things. Yeah. Tending his chickens. That's his job. Exactly. <laughs> And then, you know, this, this absurdity um, is, inserts itself into his life and, and puts everything head over heels. Yeah. So, or, you know, another good example that I liked. And so, so I'm sort of crossing, I'm cross-pollinating with my essay with, with Jack's collection. But, um, you know, there's sort of a rule of thumb <clears throat> that's become less often applied nowadays that you have, like, you know, Oh, it's like co in, in the era of cocaine bear, this, this rule of thumb is not as, as useful as it once was, but there's this you know term of like double mumbo jumbo. You can't have, you can have vampires and you can have aliens, but you can't have vampire aliens was is sort of a, the idea. Like, you know, there's only so far that an audience is willing to take you. Now, a lot of that happens nowadays with tongue in cheek films, but a lot of these high strangeness encounters are not tongue in cheek. 
you know. And yet they still combine these things in these absurd, absurd ways. You know, so I saw someone on a Where Did the Road Go YouTube comment who who, uh, misread misread one of the roundtable guests as Travis Walton. (laughs) And uh, and the the subject matter was vampires. And there was like, what, Travis Walton (laughs) ran into vampires? (laughs) And my, oh, resp- no. and my response was, you know, if, if you're into this stuff, would you be really that surprised at this point? You know, and I, I for one, wouldn't. Um, no. Yeah, I, re- no. I really wouldn't. So, um, sorry, I didn't mean to lead us too far down the garden path there, but oh, it all seems no. relevant. No, it's, it, it, it makes perfect sense. One of the things I just found out in, in my research, uh, you know how you like to say phalians and, and, uh, one of the things that people say about the grays is is they do look kind of like your prototypical um big-headed spindly-bodied big-eyed uh little goblin you know fairy pixie pukas you know little little guys that's 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 fox's favorite term for anything is a little is this a little guy you know you know giant you know there's there's a small crocodile it's just a little guy it's not gonna hurt you it's just and so i was thinking about that and i did not know this but brian froud was doing the art for fairies the book that he and alan lee put out before uh close encounters came out with their big-eyed spindly bodied and he had made a drawing that if you kind of took the hair and the wings off, it looks like they're guys. But it, it was two separate people, two separate artists mm-hmm. coming at it from different places. Andrew Collins, he, he had spoken with Froud personally mm-hmm. and got that quote from Froud. That is fascinating for a number. And of so reasons. I found that, and I just, you know, I screeched and said, "I have to tell Josh." Yeah, and no, I have to tell Zach, and I have to tell everybody. I find that fascinating. I find that super compelling. I've I've butted heads a little bit, and I I admire his research to the moon and back. So I hope if he's listening, he doesn't take offense at this. But I've butted heads a little bit with Martin Kottmeyer on this about the origin of the gray alien archetype slash face. You know, a lot of people point to Lamb. Um, Lamb is probably a lot more scatological <laughs> than, than the gray alien. Uh, we won't get into that here. Um, but uh, that, 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 that motif of the large head and large eyes and small mouth. I mean, I would argue that no, it, there wasn't like a, a focal point of the communion cover or close encounters of the third kind. It's, it's, it's kind of one of those constant travelers with us. You know, you can go back to ancient, you know, rock art and see things mm-hmm. that look like that. You can find these descriptions and as you alluded to there, depictions of the fairy folk that sort of show, show that same thing. There's that great quote from uh, Lewis Spence in his British fairy origins book about, uh, about the fairies being large headed and goggle eyed or something to that extent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's it. I, I think it's unfair to say that the gray, is purely a construct of modern pop culture. It might be a construct of pop culture, but it's also like, you know, Neolithic pop culture too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I find interesting about that to bring us back to the fairy films book is, um, I believe it's in there. Um, There's an illusion in that Brian Froud interview where um, 
there have been some some criticisms of Froud over the years that his artwork too closely looks like too closely resembles John Bowers' artwork. I personally don't see that comparison too much. If you look at some of his dark crystal designs, they kind of start to look the same, similar to Bowers' um, trolls and whatnot. But Froud had a great answer, which was basically something to the effect of, well, of course we drew them the same, because that's just what they look like. <laughs> like, just, like, you know, yeah. like oh, your, yeah. your, your, your drawing of a jaguar looks like this other guy's drawing of a jaguar. Well, you know, it's kind of what a jaguar that's looks like. what a like. jaguar yeah. looks like, dude. Yeah. They're like chonky leopards, man. Chunk, chunky, <laughs> chunky came in. Chunky eating. square yep, leopards. leopards yep. So, so yeah, I, 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 but again, this, this ties into sort of the, the central theme of, of fairy films, which is this, this permeable barrier between mm-hmm. uh, our facts and our, and our fiction. Um, which is part of the reason that I love UFO hoaxes just as much as I love UFO cases sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, because it, it, yeah. Yeah. It's a fertile field that cross pollinates essentially. Yes. yes. Um, my my upcoming uh, my upcoming presentation for Ryan Sprague's Anomicon is on a case that, if I had to bet money, is probably a hoax. But it's just such a bizarre, wild, fascinating case that I, I felt like it deserves a little bit more attention. And there's some there's some archival work that still needs to be done on it that I'm not equipped to do, and I'm sort of trying to raise awareness of this case but um but yeah that was sort of where i landed is like you know this this thing might be a complete fabrication but it might tell us something about the phenomenon if we can learn more about it or it might be genuine or you know or who cares because like these things are fascinating on both sides of that sometimes arbitrary fact fiction boundary yeah well and and one of the reasons that we're fascinated with this anyway is humans love stories. Humans love to hear stories. They love to see stories acted out. They love to tell stories. They love to trade stories. They love to star in each other's stories. So much of what writing is, is even if you're not writing fiction, it's storytelling. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a seed that, again, that comes back to the whole UFO nonfiction as literature, you know, the, the idea that there is a compelling story to be told, not just the description of, well, it was heading South, Southwest (laughs) and, uh, and Bubba, he was drinking a beer and then it, it plum buzzed our heads and he dropped it. You know, I mean, it, it, that's, Actually, that's more interesting than most of the stories yeah, you get. <laughs> I was I was going to say something. I want to know who Bubba is. Yeah, now. I, I was going to say something to that effect because, like, so much of ufology has been dominated by this um, this impulse to like measure burn marks and in the ground and you know talk about angles of ascent and descent and it's just it's not it's it's like turning poetry into VCR instructions. You know what I mean? Um, and I don't think that's the function that the UFO serves, you know? No. Um, of course, a lot of people who are really into disclosure right now are like, what do you mean the UFO serving a poetic function? I'm like, no, I think as, as, as a motif, as an archetype, the UFO, regardless, regardless of its actual objective reality, it's, it's, it's a thing unto itself in the, in what it symbolizes in our collective unconscious, honestly. Um, yeah. And, and those are always the stories that I find more interesting are the stories about like, how the people felt, um, 
you know, the, the, the sense that they had, um, you know, I, I, the idea of, you know, um, describing an in intricate detail, the propulsion system of the craft pales in comparison to people having this monistic sense of oneness, you know, at the time mm-hmm. of their encounter. Like, I think that's where the real, for me, the real attraction is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also we don't have the craft to examine. All we have is the witness to right. examine. So, which, you know, I think is a big clue, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think it's a huge clue um, as to what might be going on. Yeah. yeah. And, and not only what what's going on, but the purpose that the, the story serves. You know. Yeah. All right. So what about the story? What about this, this novel? What do you, what do you want to tell without telling too much? <laughs> and well, I'll, I'll let you tell and, and I'll be careful and, you know, no, you can interject. So, so in case, oh, any, okay. in case anybody's wondering, Barbara has, uh, read this at least twice, maybe two and a half times, twice. <laughs> twice. Yeah. Okay. Two and a half, I think is, is yeah. Cause the last part I did read again, um, that middle part. Yeah, it's so I'll give a little bit of preamble, I suppose. Um, I don't know why necessarily I felt like this had to be done now, but it did feel that way. And it um, it ended up interrupting the research that you and I were doing on another project. And to your credit, Barbara, I will forever be thankful for, to you for this. Um, I said, Barbara, I've, I've got to get this out of me. Like, I don't know why, but like, I've got to get this out of me. Um, and part of that was... Honestly, part of that was research burnout from Ecology of Souls. Um, Which is easy to believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and part of that was this desire, as I mentioned earlier, to sort of zig when people expect me to zag. You know, I, I wrote A Trojan Feast, and then I wrote The Brimstone Deceit, and people are like, okay, which one of the five senses is Josh going to do next? And then I said, nope, Thieves in the Night. So I just tried to, <laughs> try to take it in a completely different direction. Um, and... Uh, Again, part of that spicing it up for me, part of that spicing it up for people who are following along, um, all five of you out there who are following my trajectory. Um, so that was that was part of it too. Another part of it was I just got so darn intrigued by these fiction author friends of mine who would say things like, "Yeah, I tried to ha- I tried to write the character into doing this, but the character wouldn't let me do it." Or you and know, you're like, "What?" Yeah, that sounds so. I mean, it's one of those, it's, it, it was, you know, coming back to our, the beginning of our conversation, like the things that we take for granted that are actually numinous. Like that's one of those things where you can have, you know, probably the most reductionist atheistic author probably still experiences that. And they don't really question why that's happening. Um, so I wanted to experience that myself. Like I wanted to, to, in the same sense that you might treat a magical working have an experience with this other entity. And I'm not going to go so far as to say that my characters ended up being tulpas or egregores or any, or thought forms or anything like that. Um, but they're, they're, they're the more that they became concretized, the more that there was a dialogue. So I wanted to sort of delve into that and experience that. And it would happen. It would happen um, for me most often, as I think we've spoken about on the cusp between uh, wakefulness and, and falling asleep. Um, solutions would present themselves to plot problems. Um, character motivations would just like pop into my head and I have no idea where they came from. And then, you know, for years I'd sort of parroted this nice little Jungian line of, um, 
people don't have ideas, ideas have people. And I wanted to experience that, you know. And since my my luck in the field researching this stuff is generally pretty poor, um, I thought that this would be a, a pretty uh, ironclad way to invite it in. So the result of that, after um, workshopping a lot of these ideas and sifting and winnowing, um, is a novel called Them Old Ways Never Died. Um, and it ends up, it ended up doing a lot more than I really anticipated in terms of like some of the ideas and the thoughts and the messages and the motifs. Um, you know, one of the goals that I don't think I've even shared with you <clears throat> is that, uh, when you read the book, you might think that it culminates in, on Halloween and, uh, it doesn't. And, you know, Halloween is the beginning of spooky season. It's not the end of spooky season. And there aren't a lot of great ghost stories set in November. You know, there's one book called a winter haunting. That's pretty good, but like really sort of placing the end of the year on that pedestal of creep creepiness was something that I wanted to do. Um, but, uh, it also ended up sort of tying in some of my feelings on the phenomenon that you can't really cram into a book. Um, you know, I, I ended up just writing it selfishly for myself. Um, so I guess I'm sort of dancing around the actual plot, which people might be interested in. Um, <laughs> uh, oh man, I kind of feel like I might say too much or too little, Barbara. I don't really know where to I know, go. I know. That's why I'm yeah. being quiet over here going, ah. Well, because p part of the joy, I think, of, of the book is, is seeing where it's going and seeing the characters realize where it's going, I think, too. Um, but um, there is a character named Rick Coulter. Um, who, surprise, surprise, is a mu musician in North Georgia. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't make him a tuba player. I had that amount of restraint because, you know, there's there's no universe in which uh, a tuba player makes a living just playing tuba all on his own in North Georgia, <laughs> like, just, and doing nothing else, right? No. So, um, but he is a musician, and um, he is uh, forced into a period of isolation, I think, it, probably would be okay to say here that it, it is the pandemic. Um, that'll probably turn some people off because the memory is too fresh, but the last thing I want to read about, <laughs> well, you know, it's just, I, I get farther away from 2020 and I, all that time period starts to feel like a dream, including the anxiety that I had around it. And I wanted to commit that to the record in a way. Um, and I wanted to encapsulate some of the frustration that we all felt, but also some of the frustration that was particular to, you know, working musicians. Um, yeah. Luckily I had other outlets, you know, I was able to write and had other projects and, um, you know, sort of do some personal work, but I have a lot of friends who live, breathe, sleep music, and they make their entire income from it. And they were just, you know, adrift. So I want to sort of um, encapsulate that for them as well and memorialize it. So as he's in this period of isolation, he just gets more and more self-destructive and more and more in his head. Um, there's plenty of what Rick experiences that is straight up stuff that happened to me. Um, I listened to Peggy Lee's is that all there is way too many times during the pandemic. <laughs> um, and, uh, and as he is continuing through this period of isolation, he begins to realize that, um, that there's something else with him. And if you've been listening to our conversation, you know exactly where this is going, but, but again, it's part of, it's part of seeing uh, the characters sort of come to the realization that, Oh no, 
the goofiest thing that we've been, the thing that we've been told is the goofiest paranormal thing, right? Is actually one of the most powerful and disturbing and vibrant things that is out there. Um, and so uh, over the course of the story, he comes to learn some things about his own past. Um, and it's not just like, you know, it's not a one man show. There's, there are other characters. It's, it's a tight, it's a tight little ensemble of, of about four characters, but, um, but uh, he, he comes to realize that there's some, there's some corrections that he needs to make in his life. Um, that, uh, some, some debts have been unfulfilled, so to speak. And, uh, he ends up with the advice of this character. Um, that is, uh, there's another character that is, he's probably my favorite character, although I'm not sure I'm supposed to like him. You know, I don't know if you got that feeling, Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's yeah. like, it's like, am I a bad person for liking this character? Um, but he, he, he with, with the help of this individual, he is actually able to, um, progress, man. I'm being so vague. I'm so sorry, everyone. You know, it, the 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 character who who we question whether we should like him or not. He's 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 an antihero kind of person. You know, he does help people, and he does do things that are helpful. But I'm not sure I'd trust him in my life. You know yeah, I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's yeah, there's he, some. It's it's very apparent from the moment they meet him that he is a manipulative individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's he's the kind of person that, were I to meet him, I'd be like, mm, mm-hmm, sure, Jan, <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Until I, you know, got the measure of him, and then it'd be oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, at the end, he does do the right thing. He does. He just goes back and forth and does lots of other things well, too. And, and that's something that I was really concerned about. Cause you know, as we spoke about earlier about, you know, a lot of Christian movies and films um, being so preoccupied with the message or, you know, inserting their own things that they don't actually make it a good piece of art to, to stand on its own legs. I really tried to commit to, you know, things like how is this paced? You know, mm -hmm. um, it is a four act structure and I checked and within, I don't know, five pages, maybe, there are clear marks at the quarter mark, the halfway mark, the third of the way, mark, you know, uh, three quarters of the mark and, you know, towards the end. Um, so I, I, I tried to make sure that it was paced well. I tried to make sure that these were actual characters and not caricatures. Although there, there is one character who is probably a little bit more of a caricature, but I've known some folks like her <laughs> in my life as yeah, you have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, 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 you know, another thing this book I really wanted to do is um, in addition to sort of continuing or extending spooky season into the end of the year, as the book does, um, I wanted to, you know, have something that was sort of a, a hymn to the inherent spookiness of Appalachia. Um, you know, and again, just writing things that I wanted to see in a lot of ways that I just don't have enough mm -hmm. of, um, you know, uh, I can spill some beans here, I guess, if people have made it this far, but, um, you know, there is a strong fairy element in the book. And I just don't feel like there's a lot of good fairy fiction out there. And, or, or you have to look for it. I see this look on Barbara's face. Yeah, <laughs> you have to look for it, but a lot of it's older. A lot That's of another thing. A lot, a of, lot of it yeah. is from the, the 1990s, the 1980s. And, and, you know, and, and then some of it has terrible covers that, you know, you would never pick it up and read it. Yep, yep. I mean, you know, I think we've talked about, you know, some kind of fairy tale and, and woodwife and King of Morning, yeah. Queen of Day. And, um, 
you know, King of Morning, Queen of Day was a huge inspiration for this. I don't know how evident it was, but like the idea of a, a tale that's told over generations because the story does span, what is it, 123 years, I guess? Yes. Um, that there, there, there are some very heavy generational influences in the book as well. So that sort of came out um in the process but also a lot of this a lot of this fairy fiction that you do see like it it kind of does this cafeteria style thing with fairy folklore and you know i think everybody in order to fit the needs of what they write about has to cheat with that a little bit but i really tried to be as faithful to this stuff as possible to the extent that someone like you barbara probably saw some things coming um oh yeah because because yeah. i was like oh this is the setup because this is where the folklore leads but you know i just don't feel like you you, you get a lot of that nowadays you know um you know i think of so, some of the you know that was one of the problems with with the fairy films book is that like there's so much of this fairy these fairy movies are just sort of kind of taking and leaving what they want um and not saying that the good folk adhere to a strict set of rules but um i think it just makes it resonate a little bit more and it's kind of like a fun easter egg for people you know who 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 are like oh he actually managed to stuff that into the into the book as well so yeah 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 there wasn't anything that i was i was predictive about like i know this is exactly what's going to happen that didn't happen but you know once once the creatures showed themselves and i was like oh Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I see. Yep. You're you're some nasty little buggers, aren't you? <laughs> they are nasty little buggers. You know, there's there's um I just there's not a lot of good and there's not enough of this in the book. I wish I had put more in there, but it's long enough as it is. There's not a lot of good like fairy house terror. Um if that makes sense. It's a fairy siege but, uh, fiction out there, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? In the same sense that you have some people who are like, you know, you know, battered up inside their house waiting for the aliens to land and, you know, and come into the house and take them. Like, you don't you don't really see that with the, with the fairy folklore, and that's something else that I thought was was missing a bit. So, um, so yeah, that was something else that I, I wanted to see, but, you know, trying to balance what I wanted to see with what yeah. was most appropriate for the novel and and the directions that it that that it, that it that I was being told that I was going in, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, so did that happen? And which characters decided they didn't want to do what you tried to make them do? Uh, the shifty character. Um, mm. You know, there's. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like my 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 favorite. What was his name again? Yeah. 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 I know. Um, my my favorite character and the one who um, just really ended up pushing. He's, he's he's my favorite character. I'm not sure I trust him. I'm not sure I'm supposed to like him, but he is my favorite. He's also, as you as you perceived, um, the most difficult to write. <laughs> and because of that, he was sort of fussy about some of the stuff that he was doing. Um, Barbara did have me do a substantial rewrite of a section. It's not like it wasn't a substantial rewrite in the grand scheme of the way that novels get rewritten. But there was a, there was a section that stood out like a sore thumb. And once we tweaked it and I fixed it. I'm like, Oh no, this is the way it was supposed to go all along. It's not like, it's not like I even made a wrong decision or I made the right decision by, by sort of rearranging and rewriting things. It felt more like the signal got garbled, um, mm -hmm. more than anything else. Um, and so with that tidied up, um, 
yeah, he he he's the one that sort of came to me um, in, while I was about to fall asleep. Of course, that's what he would do. Um, he came to me while I was asleep and was like, "No, this is this is exactly what needs to happen here." Um, again, we're just. T- I, f- I feel like ah, I feel like we're being so vague, but um, not trying to be coy. But again, I think that the journey of of, of discovering all this stuff is really what uh, is really what is enjoyable about the book. So, sorry, folks. I know this is probably the most frustrating interview that I've ever given, but <laughs> that's all right. You know the the section you're talking about one of the things that i've always said is that rewrites are where the art comes in and rewrites are where you make it fit together sometimes with your first draft all you're doing is getting it out right on the page and it's not necessarily going to be in the right order it's going to be sometimes it's just this hodgepodge mess of stuff. And that's why I like rewriting because you've got the hard part. To me, the hard part is the first draft. That's yeah. That's, that's what my wife kept on saying. Every time I complained about, it. she was like, just write. She's like, just get it on the effing page. Cause yeah. the, the yeah. Ed- editing is easy and editing isn't easy. Um, but, um, there is this feeling that not unlike a dream or a trip that if you don't get it down, right there is mm-hmm. going to sort of evaporate into vapor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of ideas that I had that I was like, Oh, I'll write that down. And I just completely lost them. And I have no idea where they are now. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, just, just trying to commit it all to paper. Um, although, you know, again, with the way that I do things, I had it, I, I was not a pantser, you know, they do talk about on um, planners and pantsers, the people who write on the seat of their pants. I was, a very deep planner with this. I had a, an outline that was probably about 40 pages long. <laughs> just like whenever I think of a line, I, I put it in the outline and make sure that it made its way into the final, the final version. Um, so yeah, it's, and it's, it's, it's all been a big experiment for me in a lot of ways. Like, I think that I don't want to make it sound like it's experimental. It's actually quite conventional in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, I don't want to make it sound like I was trying strange stuff, but it's an experiment in terms of, you know, is this something that I'm capable of? I never thought I could write a novel because I wanted to write a novel that was about something. Um, a, a criticism that I have of a lot of monster movies and 14 fiction is that like the only part of me that it appeals to is my inner 12 year old. And my adult side is, you know, it's, it kind of, it's, I don't want to say popcorn movie, but like, you know, it's just sort of a, a frippery, <laughs> yeah. to use an unused word. Um, it's just sort of a light little bonbon that really doesn't have anything else that it's saying underneath. And I was sort of committed much in the style that, you know, Jordan Peele, like his work or hate it, he's always trying to say something else. Like you haven't, you haven't encountered the monsters in Jordan Peele's movies, but you, but you have, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I wanted to write something that had that sort of subtext to it as well and finding something that fit um, and then actually had something to say and something that I felt could be said authentically um, was a bit of a challenge. And that's the reason that I hadn't written fiction for so long is because I was always like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if there was like, you know, a, you know, a, 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 a really great scary lake monster novel. And I'm like, okay, what's it about? Like, it's about lake monsters, but what's it about? You know, what's the actual, 
meaning what what's its reason see, for existing yeah uh, see i i feel that it would be a couple going on their honeymoon to the highlands of scotland and then something terrible happens and there we are yeah but what's i guess what i'm saying is like for me the the monster has to the the, the lake monster in this sense would have to like be emblematic of a secret in their past that keeps mm-hmm. on raising up and, you know, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. or an argument that they had or like a, a horrific moment that they're trying to forget some trauma. That, you know, something like that. Yeah. Something awful. Yeah. Um, so that's the reason that I put it off for so long. And then I was like, well, maybe it could be this. And so it, it ended up being that. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 it's been an experiment in the sense that I have, as I'm, as I've become fond of saying, I have no expectations for it, but I do have aspirations for it. Um, and if no one likes it, then I wrote it for me and that's all that I really set out to do. Um, but if people do like it, then I'm so grateful to have them on the journey. And, uh, again, it's, I had those moments with ecology of souls too. I think I have it every time I write, like, you know, does anybody really want to read this? (laughs) But, but if I write something that, if I write something that I want, I would want to read and I would look at it and say, this is of a sufficient quality, then, you know, maybe other people will too. So that's, that's generally the best way to write i think it is Um, if you write to your supposed audience you're writing to nothing or no one because you don't know who your supposed audience is unless it's you're writing a book for one person one specific person you know always write for yourself that's that's just you know what yourself likes you don't yeah. Any, yeah. Anytime art's involved, and like, I'm not saying that you don't like. I'm not saying that you don't have to pay attention to. Um, you know, I'm not saying that if if the crowd says, you know, play when the saints go marching in, you don't play when the saints go marching in. I'm not saying that, but at the same time, like, don't try to micromanage what you're doing to accommodate some fickle audience that you have, um, mm-hmm. because. Uh, they're they're so capricious they're just gonna they're gonna change constantly and that that can be an audience you know at a performance it can be a youtube audience um yeah you know trying to chase after these trends uh is just gonna be maddening because it's always it's always much like the phenomenon that we've discussed it's as as soon as you think you have it nailed down it's gonna slip out of your fingers yeah um yeah and then that's never that's never fun at all Ever, so in in a slight breach of ethics, I suppose um, Barbara edited it and she provided a blurb. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was I was a little kind of like, should we? Yeah, but I mean, I I and you can you can take that out if you want to, Um, (laughs) but um, but I just I feel like you have an intimacy with the book that really no one else has. Yeah, I, um, and, I, I did read it like more times than Neil did. So, right, right, right. And then my family did. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I just, I just felt like, uh, you know, I, I value your voice and your endorsement because I mean, let's face it. If, if you hadn't liked this, I'm not sure if it wouldn't still be sitting on my hard drive or in a drawer in my desk because, I know the kind of things that you like and the fact that you like something that, that I did says, okay, this has a level of, this is past the threshold of quality for me at least. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yes. Because you know that I won't lie. 
No, I mean, yeah, no. Because <laughs> I won't just say, "Oh, this is great." I was mm. when you came when you came to me with those rewrites. I just like stewed about it for about a month, just like turning it over in my head and sort of getting sick to my stomach and feeling like it was the most insurmountable task. And no, it no, it wasn't because it wasn't because the rewrite was the way that it was, as we said, always supposed to go. Um, and it's so much better for it. Um, Honestly, what it felt like when I read that that one chapter where you just had all of that information just poured out of a character's mouth it was like harrison ford you can write like that but you right. can't say that and right. people don't talk that way and so that that was exactly how i presented it to you i was like okay nobody talks this way well it was just so you know now he is gonna say all these things yeah yeah it's just but, it's, but you it's, just can't yeah. have it all come out at once it was it was inauthentic to the character at that moment. Yeah. Um, is, is there anything else that you think I can share about the plot without giving too much away? I mean, I'm, I'm I, I feel like we're I feel like people are going to be so frustrated by this. <laughs> um, well, um, as I'll tr- as I've trusted your judgment with <laughs> so much of this project, I th- I'll I th- trust your judgment with that as well. It's it's kind of a universal story. You have a main character who is at a crossroad in his life who has a an addiction mm-hmm. and he has he has to do something something has to happen and then things do start happening that really really aren't his problem truly uh, except it has become his problem mm-hmm. and that in a way pushes him to start fixing things. But this problem that comes jumping at him that really wasn't meant to be his at all uh, is so insane and crazy and crazy making that it- Kind of perpetuates his problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it just makes everything so much worse. And and what it is, it's 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 a fantastical tale of how you break addiction. Mm-hmm. It isn't easy. And there's always something else. And what happens here is the something else is really something else because it's not a human thing. It is not a normal, quote unquote, real world thing. And I'm not saying this never happens to people because it does. This is just a particularly dramatic version of what happens to people. Right. But what happens is is it shows that addiction is a thing that doesn't end right it's just um (laughs) i don't want to say you find a way around it but like it it has to be sort of integrated um, Mm -hmm. in that way and and yeah his his journey is one of three steps forward two steps backward um which i feel is very consistent two and, and a half steps yeah. in, in, a, in a few places <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, oh man yeah, no yeah. Um, you know I, there are times when you want to talk to the book yeah, rick no <laughs> and and so people are hearing this and you know so you know write what you know um wanting to present things with authenticity so of course josh wrote about you know uh music georgia goblins and 
in recovery, right? <laughs> so so I, I know some people are going to be like, oh, so this is an autobiography. But the same thing I told my family, like, you're going to see some things in here that, like, yes, are pretty much one-to-one direct lifts. But, like, it's not it's not that at all. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some people who are going to read it and see that I've, and feel, rather, that I've bifurcated my personality into two different characters, the musician character and the uh, paranormal aficionado character. <laughs> and they're probably going to be like, oh, it's just two sides of Josh. But no, I mean, they're 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 distinct from me. Um, you know, uh, Rick is a bit like me, um, but he's like all the worst parts of me in a lot of ways, at least in the beginning. Um, you know, dialed up uh, to a certain degree. I think you said uh, me through a glass darkly. So that's that's kind of a yeah. way to put it. But yeah, um, all, 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 all similarities to people, uh, real and fictional, is coincidental, et cetera. You know, the discla- old disclaimer. Um, but yeah, um, I'm just uh, I'm just thrilled to... Oh, I, maybe I... Well, no, it's not a video podcast. So I was going to show the book here. Um, <laughs> uh, if you want, I can put the, the cover in the... That would be art. lovely. That would be lovely. I can yeah, send just, you the, just yeah. send me a. Um, but uh, is, some people will probably look at how long it is and be a little bit intimidated. But uh, as I alluded to, I, I tried to keep it moving. I had a rule that I think there's of all the chapters in the book, there's maybe like two or three where something unusual doesn't happen. You know what I mean? Like they had sort of a mandate where like there's got to be something supernatural in almost every chapter. Um, and uh, just to keep things interesting, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and and I do I do think that uh, you know, it's it's I, th- I do think that it's paced well enough that you sort of don't notice that it's as long as it is. So yeah, yeah, no, it's paced really well. Yeah. I can say that straight up because the first time I read it, I just read it. And yeah, I, I was so super surprised with how quickly you just sort of uh, ended up devouring yeah. it. But um, uh, and, yeah. yeah. If it's not interesting, I can't gallop through it like that. Well, I, I, I go, oh, yeah, and then I, you know, I can't. But yeah. no, I stayed up late, like, you know, really late well, to read that. through it. So, Well, as, as Neil Rushton, who was kind enough to blurb, um, who we've talked about several times on this podcast, um, was was kind enough to say, he said that, you know, you looked at it and he was like, oh, this is kind of long, Josh. But he said that he realized, as you and I discussed earlier um, off the air, he said that he realized that it just needed a place to breathe, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I just need some time to breathe and it needs some time to, to have, to spend time with these characters so that you don't second guess their motivations and things like that. You know, I, I also confess, I do have a little bit of a problem when I read a book and it's like, they had to sit there and wait for seven hours and it was going to be the longest time. And they were just going to stew when seven hours passed, you know, <laughs> I don't feel like that, that next moment is as earned. Mm-hmm. So let's, so instead of like, just sort of skipping over that. Let's use some of that time. Obviously you're not going to write seven hours worth of, of, of prose, but some, some authors, some do. authors do, um, but, but use know. a little bit of that time to, you know, do some character development or, you know, provide some insight or, you know, have, have one sentence out of the info dump that you mentioned earlier, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so there's, so there's a little bit of that and just, you know, and uh, I'll say, you know, we we're talking about my purple prose um, in journalism school. There are a couple of times when I'm like, you know what? I'm going to describe these damn leaves and you're going <laughs> to sit there while I, while I, while I describe these leaves, because again, I'm, I'm doing it for me. So there's, there's a paragraph or two in there. That's, you know, probably a little bit indulgent. And I realize that, but um, I also just, again, I have, I, I do have a, a love of, of language such that I wanted to sort of 
do something different. Um, because, you know, in my nonfiction books, I generally have so much information that I don't get to tell stories. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't get to, I try to work in, as we said earlier, I try to work in a nice little turn of phrase here or there, um, something a little bit elegant. But um, for the most part, it's it's pretty mer- pretty workmanlike, you know, just, uh, you know, just the facts, ma'am. And uh, I just, I didn't, I don't, I don't know if I will ever have another opportunity to languish a little bit here and there. So, or luxuriate, not languish. <laughs> the readers are languishing. Like, the readers dude. are languishing. I'm luxuriating. Um, but yeah, I didn't know if I would, I would ever have the same opportunity to luxuriate. So um, there's a little bit of that. But I think that if you appreciate having a descriptive picture painted for you, there are some, there are some nice moments in there, I think. Yeah, I mean, you caught the 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 look and the smell and the feel of Appalachia in the fall. That's that's really well done. So thank you. Yeah, writing as I as I've said to you before, like writing about forests is hard because there's just so much. There's so much to describe, and it's also it can be such a nondescript hodgepodge of, of trees and limbs and such. You're like, how do you differentiate one spot from another and, and whatnot? So that was a little bit of a challenge, um, but it's here. Them old ways never died. It's as the, as, as of the time that you listen to this, um, the Kindle is available for pre-order and the print book will be available on August 28th, 2023. Um, which has a certain special significance for me. It's my sobriety date. Um, I felt like that was, you know, I was considering talking to an astrologer and finding a good release date, but I'm like, no, it's this, it's, if it's in this window, like it's, that's kind of the date that it needs to be. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it seemed to, seemed to resonate with my journey and what sort of led me here to this and to the subject matter, which I don't know would have ever happened uh, if I hadn't, you know, made the choices that I made in 2020. So, yeah. Excellent. The thing about novels is all of the characters are you, even it's when true. they're not. It's true. So, you know, people who say, well, that's just Josh. Well, you know, that's just Alice Walker, too. And that's just, it. <laughs> that's just Tolkien. And that's just, yes, yeah. we, do, we do build uh, characters based on other people or based on aspects of other people, but they still come out of us yeah that becomes a challenge when you're writing about a character with sort of a different lived experience uh than you Mm -hmm. have in which case you might tend to base it more off of you know someone else um there is a character in here um rick's best friend uh who is (laughs) very strongly lifted from a musician that i work with every Oktoberfest here in georgia um and it was just it was just such a perfect match and she is such a character to be around in real life that I'm like, this is the exact kind of the exact appropriate foil uh, for Rick to sort of go on this journey with. So, um, yeah. So, so having sort of a externalizing, it can be a little bit better when you're dealing with someone who might not be the same gender as you or might, you know, have dealt with a different set of life experiences or, you know, in the case of this character, having a different vice than you do or, or whatnot. Yeah. 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 Sorry for all the vagaries folks. I promise you it's, (laughs) it's really good. Yeah. It really is. It really is. Well, do you have anything else that you want to, uh, throw out there. Since this is coming out before the end of August, I will be at DragonCon in Atlanta. Um, 
my own backyard. I'm giving several panels. I've got all those listed on my website. Dragon Con itself is in downtown Atlanta, August 31st through September 4th. Um, last year was my first year and I was quite humbled um, and, and honored to have met some people who drove for, for a couple of hours to just have me sign a book. So if anybody is thinking about coming up here, I will, I'll make some time for you. Yeah, it'll happen. Um, especially some of these days, cause we've got like a panel in the morning and a panel late at night and it's like, okay, well, I'm not gonna, <laughs> not gonna go home in that difference. So, um, so, uh, there's, that's coming up. Anomicon uh, is that same weekend, actually, uh, with Ryan Sprague. You can find that at Ryan Sprague's YouTube channel. Uh, my my talk is pre-recorded, so I'll be <laughs> I'll be in two places at once. And uh, you know, there might be some more some more news conference wise on the horizon later in the year. We just got to see how some stuff lines up. Uh, but for the time being, um, I am relieved to have them old ways never died uh, completed, and excited to share it with people and just to share these characters with folks. Um, really looking forward to that and to continuing my journey with Barbara Fisher for our next project, <laughs> which I'm, I, after having gotten the novel bug out of my system, um, I'm ready to, to jump back into to doing all the heavy lifting of research. Although you've been, Barbara has not stopped since I have stopped. So she's sort of lapped me about five or six times and has done some great work. So I'm looking forward to focusing on that a little bit more in tone. Well, I also have an assistant, so. Yeah, well, <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't take all the credit. You didn't have to volunteer it. that, you know, you could have just. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, uh, nah, I, I just can't. <laughs> Although the, the first assistant, I will say, this is really funny. She, she's a skeptic mm -hmm. and uh, she would read stuff. And at first she, she would just, you know, come up with this. That's just, that's just uh dismissive it's a psychological thing it's just like and then she started reading about other anomalous light phenomena and was like now now wait a minute this is this is different this uh, how can it not emit a beam yeah. what yeah. that light travels until it's interrupted <laughs> she's yeah. like you know I, I i i'm a political science major but i think I know enough physics that that's... Did you tell her something something to the effect of, if you think that's compelling, you should see it for yourself? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. That's, that's basically what Morgana and I both said. It's like, well, it is really frightening. And then even Zach said, because he's seen them like twice, and, and he said, oh, yeah, it's, it's really disturbing to think you're looking at a laser pointer dot, except it stops in midair. And there's no beam to cast it. It's just yeah. there yeah and he says and here i am running around trying to interrupt the beam but there's no beam to interrupt yeah, it's it's but, it's popped off of flatland so it's not, yeah, yeah 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 well uh, it's, it's exciting things to come it's going to be we're going to try to wrap our arms around the subject matter as best as we can and yeah <laughs> there's a lot of it so well thank you for for coming thank you for the opportunity Barbara. thank you so much for the opportunity and um again apologies to anybody who thought that we were tiptoeing around some things but i think that um it's kind of like telling you what your christmas present is we just we, we, we got it for you and we know you're gonna like it just take a look at it <laughs> we're gonna let you do it and we're not gonna describe it for you so kind of what we did was we shook the box for you <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> sorry okay yeah. you can listen you know you can't touch it 
I'll shake it for you. There you, you go. You've shaken the box, and we've told you it's not a pony. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's not a pony. Yeah. Everyone likes ponies, but yeah. no, it's not a pony. All right. Well, thank you, and uh, of course, you're always welcome back. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.